Let's go ahead and start with a word of prayer, and then if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to open them up to Matthew chapter 21, and uh, we're going to take a look at two of the Lord's parables today, a parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked tenants. So let's just go ahead and ask the Lord's blessing on our time together, ask that he pours out his Holy Spirit and open our minds and our hearts to his word for us today. So let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, if you have your Bibles, again, go ahead and open them up. We are in Matthew chapter 21. We are coming into the final saga. Jesus has entered Jerusalem by this point. We've studied the triumphal entry, and we are picking up at verse 28 today, and we're going to go ahead and read through verse 46. I don't know that we'll actually get through the end of the chapter today, but while I breathe, I hope, so we'll give it the best shot we have. Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 28. I'm reading from the English Standard Version of the Bible. You may have the NIV version or the New King James or whatever it may be. Uh, any translation is perfectly fine, but I'm reading from the English Standard. So if my version is a little bit different from yours, uh, that's the reason. So Matthew chapter 21, beginning at verse 28. What do you think, Jesus asked? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two do you think did the will of his father? They said, the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same thing to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, Surely they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, 
And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. One of the great battle cries of the Protestant Reformation was the battle cry, sola fide. Uh, literally translated, it means by faith alone. Uh, this was the great battle cry of Martin Luther. Um, Luther lived in the medieval period, of course, and he did his best to earn God's favor. As many of you know, he became an Augustinian monk, one of the strictest orders of the Roman Catholic Church of that time. And yet, no matter how hard he tried, um, Luther discovered very early on that there was no way to earn God's favor. He never really felt as though he was approved by God. He never felt as though he could actually earn his way into God's grace and God's mercy. And then he was reading from the first chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans, and he came across this passage, the just shall live by faith. And it was as if a whole new world opened up for Martin Luther. He suddenly discovered that when it comes to righteousness, that is to say a right relationship with God, it's not on the basis of anything we do. It's on the basis of what Christ has already done on our behalf. And what we have to do is receive that by faith. The doctrine of justification, the word justify means to be lined up. Um, you've heard me say this before. If you do word processing on your computer, if you type in a document and you want it to look neat and tidy, you go to the top, you hit the justify button, and all the margins go flush. It's probably that way in your Bible. If you look at the text, you'll notice that the left margin and the right margin all line up. One line is not shorter than the other. That's, mean, that's what it means to be justified. And that's what it means to be in a right standing before God. To be justified before God means you are rightly lined up with him. And how does that happen? It doesn't happen by virtue of anything we do. It happens by virtue of what Christ has done. And we receive his finished work by faith. Faith alone. Martin Luther called this the doctrine of the standing church. And it's what the Apostle Paul elaborates on in Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says you are saved by grace, that is God's undeserved, unearned favor, by faith. And then he goes on to make it very clear. He clinches the nail. He says, not by works, so that no man may boast. In other words, what do you and I contribute to the process of our salvation? Nothing. Nothing but the sin from which we need to be redeemed. Jesus Christ did it all. He paid the perfect price, and we received that finished work by faith. But while the Reformers certainly believed that this was, again, the doctrine of the standing church, and while they certainly believed that we are saved by faith alone, they did not believe, and they made this very clear, that we are saved by a faith that is alone. In other words, you can take the doctrine of justification by faith, and you can distort it. You can distort it to mean that as long as you're saved by faith, by simply believing in the finished work of Christ, then it really doesn't matter how you live your life. As someone once said, uh, you can believe in Christ, and you can live like hell. But that's not really what the doctrine teaches. Paul was very clear, we are saved by grace, 
and by grace and faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Uh, this whole charge of what we would call antinomianism, uh, living your life any way you want and simply believing in Christ and being saved, what some people call the carnal Christian, is something that was lobbed against Paul by his critics. And Paul was very clear that that's not what he was teaching. Keep your finger there in Matthew for just a moment and flip over to the right in the New Testament to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 1. Uh, this was the charge that was lobbed against Paul by the people in Jerusalem, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, and even some converts to Christianity, what Paul referred to as the Judaizers. They said, well, Paul is saying that you're simply saved by what you believe, by believing in Christ alone. Therefore, it doesn't matter really how you live your life. You can do anything you want, and you are still saved. But look at what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. In other words, Paul says we have been buried with Christ in his death by faith, yes, but just as Christ was raised to new life, so we have been raised to new life. This is one of the things that I think is so important when you think about the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. You know, the Gospels are very clear. When Jesus was raised from the dead, he was physically raised. When we think about the Easter event, we are not talking about some sort of spiritual apparition. It wasn't a case where the spirit of Jesus rose in the hearts of his disciples. The Gospels are very clear. It was a physical bodily resurrection. Thomas had the opportunity to take his hand and put it in the Lord's side, to take his finger and put it in the nail prints in the Lord's hands. The disciples saw Jesus break the bread and eat with them. This was no ghost, my friends. This was a physical bodily resurrection. And yet, even though it was a physical resurrection, something that happened to Jesus as a consequence of the resurrection. It was the same Jesus, and yet he was somehow transformed. This is one of the reasons why the early believers, when they first encountered the risen Jesus, didn't recognize him. You'll recall that Mary Magdalene, when she first encountered him, thought that he was the gardener. The disciples on the way to Emmaus, we're told, didn't recognize him, even though he walked with them along the road for several miles. It wasn't until he broke the bread, that familiar act, that suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized him. And the same was even true for the disciples up by the Sea of Galilee afterward. We're told that Peter and John were in the boat fishing. Jesus appeared on the seashore, and he cried out, have you caught anything? And they said, nothing. And Jesus said, throw your nets on the other side of the boat, those familiar words that he had used three years earlier when he first called them. And when they heard those words, suddenly John turned to Peter and said, it is the Lord. In other words, the resurrection changed Jesus. It made him almost unrecognizable. And not only that, but it gave Jesus the ability to do things that up to that point he had not been able to do. We're told that he had a physical body, and yet he could pass through bolted and barred doors. He could appear out of nothing. In other words, the resurrection changed him. He lived a new life, a resurrected life. Well, that's what Paul is saying there in Romans. He said, we are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith alone. 
that is alone. We have been buried with Christ, and having been raised, we are called to live a new life. So let me be very clear about something. The Reformers, and this is the teaching not just of the Reformers, but of Augustine before them and the Apostle Paul before him, they are all very clear, you and I are not saved by our works. We are saved by God's unmerited, undeserved favor. We receive that by faith. But that doesn't mean that while we are not saved by works, there is no place for works in the Christian life. The works do not save you, but they are the evidence, they are the consequence, they are the result, they are the fruit of salvation. And that was a point that Jesus made throughout his ministry. If you go back in Matthew uh, toward the beginning to the account of the Sermon on the Mount, um, you have this wonderful passage in Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them, how? By their fruits. He says, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? No. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Jesus made the same point in John chapter 15. He said, I am the vine, you are the branches, abide in me, and you will bear much fruit. This was the point that Jesus made in our study last week in Matthew chapter 21. He came upon that fig tree that was in leaf, which was an indicator that it should have had fruit, but when he got there, he saw there were leaves but no fruit, and he cursed the fig tree as a symbol to his disciples of what fruitless religion is really all about and what will happen to fruitless religion. It will be cursed, it will wither, and it will die. So when we are in a right relationship with Christ, while our works don't save us, they are indeed the evidence. They are the consequence of true faith. Now, we know this to be true. Even if you're not an expert in horticulture, you know an apple tree when you see one, especially if it has apples on it. You know an orange tree. Even if you don't know the shape of the leaves, you know when you see an orange hanging on a tree that it's an orange tree or a loquat tree or whatever it may be. We recognize it by its fruit. And the point that Jesus is making here is that we are known as Christian people by the way we live our lives. The works are the consequence. They are the fruit of being in fellowship with Jesus Christ. Now, that was the point that Jesus had made in Matthew chapter 21. And it was such an important point and one that he wanted his disciples to understand very clearly that Jesus went on, as he often did, to tell a story, a story that would illustrate this point. And that's the two parables that I read to you just a moment ago. The parable of the two sons, the parable of the tenants, they are all intended to emphasize this idea that religion without fruit is worthless. So the first parable, it's the parable of two sons. A man comes to his sons, he owns a vineyard, and he says to the first son, go and work in the vineyard today. And the son replies, I'm not going to do it. 
I'm sure he made excuse. Uh, it's probably too hot out there today, Dad. I've got other plans. I'm not going to do it. But then Jesus says he thought about it and recognized that that wasn't the right way to treat his father. And so we're told he relents, he repents, and he decides to actually go and work in the vineyard. In the meantime, however, his father has gone to a second son, and he tells him to go and work in the vineyard. And this son replies, of course, father, I'll do it. I'm a good son. I'm an obedient son. He promises to go out and do the work, but he actually never does. He goes off and he does something else. And Jesus asks the question, which of the two sons did the will of the father? Now, one thing is very clear here. This is a parable about Israel. It's a parable about Israel and her leaders, namely the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. And we know that because of the context. This is in Matthew chapter 21. When Jesus had entered Jerusalem, what was the first thing that he did? He went up to the temple and he drove the money changers out. He drove them out because why? Because of their fruitless religion. They had taken a house of prayer and turned it into a den of thieves. And Jesus was saying that is what fruitless religion really looks like. It looks like Israel and her leaders. As the Apostle Paul put in 2 Timothy chapter 3, they have the form of godliness. All the trappings of religion. The temple was a magnificent structure in the first century. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. They had the prophets. They had the teaching of the law. They had all of the outward trappings of religion, but their hearts were far from the Lord. Their hearts were far from the Lord. And Jesus was trying to make the point that that was the problem. That is why the son was rejected. It was because of all of this empty religion. So the parable, in one sense, is, is meant to teach these people about Israel and her leaders. But this parable is also about service. It's not just about Israel and her leaders. These parables are, of course, for all people in all ages, which means this is a parable for you and for me as well. The key to understanding the Lord's parables, and I've said this before, the key to understanding one of the Lord's parables is that you are intended to put yourself into the story. So a few weeks ago, or maybe just a, maybe a week ago, I did a little devotion uh, on Wednesday morning about the prodigal son, uh, not the prodigal son, excuse me, about the um, Good Samaritan. And I made the point that in that story about the Good Samaritan, there were a number of characters. Uh, there is the man who is beaten and left by the side of the road for dead. And then along comes the priest, and he passes by on the other side. Along comes a Levite, he passes by on the other side. And finally, there comes a Samaritan. The Samaritan, of course, were the sworn enemies of the Jews. And to everyone's surprise, it's the good Samaritan who gets down off of his mountain, addresses the wounds of the wounded man, carries him into town, and pays for his health and for his lodging. And Jesus asks the question, he said, which one was a neighbor to the wounded man? And everybody replies, the good Samaritan. And I asked the question, which one are we in this story? Are we the priest who passes by on the other side? Are we the Levite who passes by on the other side? Are we the good Samaritan? We all like to think we're the good Samaritan. 
But I actually made the point that if we're anybody in that story, we're actually the wounded man. We are the ones that have been beaten and abused as a consequence of sin. And Jesus is the good Samaritan, the one who is rejected, but who comes along at a great cost to himself, rescues us. Well, that's how you work a parable. You have to figure out where am I in this story? So in this parable of the two sons, we're meant to ask ourselves, who are we in the story? It's pretty clear who the Jewish religious leaders were. They were that second son, the son who said, oh yes, I will do your will, God, but then did what? Turned around and did something very different. So which son are we? Are we the son that promises that we'll be obedient to the Lord, but then we go off and follow our own desires, the devices of our own hearts? Or are we that son who says, no, we won't go, but we repent and we return to the Lord? Well, that's how we're supposed to read this parable. And you have to answer that question for yourself. You know, there are many people in the world who, like the Jewish religious leaders, have all the trappings of religion. They go to church. Maybe they've been raised in the church their whole lives. Their parents were faithful Christians. It may be that they have gone through all the rites and the ceremonies of the church. They've been baptized as an infant. They've been confirmed. But somehow they've never really served the Lord. They've never actually given himself over to the service of the Lord. On the other hand, there are those people who perhaps have never really been raised in the church. They've lived a life that is notorious, a life of sin. But then they hear the gospel and they repent of that and they come back and they begin to serve the Lord for the rest of their days. Which one do you think is more pleasing to the Lord? Well, even the Pharisees and the scribes knew the answer. It's the one who actually repents and does what the Father wants. Which one are we? Well, this much is clear. While the second son was a hypocrite, and the first son was better. Neither son was perfect. When I think of the second son who said that he would do what the father asked him, but then went off and did something different, I'm reminded of this character. Tell me if you know who this is. You have to be of a certain generation to recognize who this fellow is. Anybody know who that fellow is? That's Eddie Haskell. We all know who Eddie Haskell is from Leave it to Beaver, the one that was always complimenting Mrs. Cleaver on her cooking or on her dress, but behind her back was always scheming with one of her sons. He was a hypocrite, and the word that is translated as hypocrite in English is Greek, pokritos. It literally means to wear a mask. That's what Eddie Haskell did, didn't he? He wore the mask of respectability, but he really wasn't sincere. Well, that's a picture of the second son. Promises to do all of the right things, but then actually goes off and does something different. Far from perfect. And while the first son is to be preferred to the second, we shouldn't think for one minute that that means that he was perfect. He really wasn't. The first son could have done better as well. You see, when his father said to him, go and work in the vineyard, his response should have been, yes, father, I will be obedient. I will go and work in your vineyard. And he should have done it right away. Now, thanks be to God that he did repent and ultimately do it. But isn't it sad that he didn't do it immediately? 
I think this is the way it is with people when they're young. Uh, this is the way it is for many young people today. They know that they need to get serious about God. They know they need to have a relationship with God. But the desires and the excitement of the world are such that they feel that they can put it off until a later time. I've told you about St. Augustine. Um, before he really got serious about the faith, he used to keep a diary. Um, it's wonderful reading. If you've never read the Confessions of St. Augustine, let me go ahead and encourage you to do so. It's wonderful reading, and it's very insightful. But Augustine once recorded in his diary, Oh, Lord, make me chaste. He was a very handsome young man. He was a wealthy young man, came from a, a well-to-do family, uh, and he was a bit of a womanizer. He was a bit of a playboy. And he knew because his mother was always sharing the gospel with him that he needed to convert. He needed to get serious about the faith. And on one occasion, he wrote in his diary, oh, Lord, make me chaste, dot, 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 but not yet. <laughs> in other words, let me go ahead and have my fun. And, and then eventually, you know, when it's a more convenient time, I'll get serious about the faith, but not yet. And let's face it, there are many people like that today, aren't there? They know they need to get serious about faith. They know that ultimately they're going to die. No one lives forever on this planet. But they're not ready yet. They want to continue to sow their wild oats. They want to continue to enjoy all that the world has to offer. And at some more convenient time, they think, I'll get serious about that. But there are a couple of problems with that. First of all, there's no guarantee that you'll have the opportunity to repent later. There's no guarantee. And in the meantime, what do you think you're going to be doing? You're going to be continuing to sin. And that doesn't soften a person's heart. It actually hardens a person's heart. So the longer you go without God and the further you get away from God, the less the chances of you having the opportunity one day to come back to God. It's far better, my friends, when the Lord calls on you at whatever stage in your life and commands you to do something. It is far better, rather than to wait and do it later, to respond immediately. What the Lord really wants from us is something that's better than both of these sons in the parable. He doesn't want the fruitless life of the second son, but nor does he want that halting obedience of the first son. What he wants is immediate obedience and a lifelong service to him. Well, that's what this first parable is all about. It's about showing our works. There's a wonderful old hymn. It's not in our hymnal, but it comes from the 19th century that talks about those who think that they'll get to religion, they'll get to faith later. It was written by Philip Bliss in the middle of the 19th century, right about the time of the Civil War. And it goes like this, almost persuaded now to believe, almost persuaded the gospel to receive, almost persuaded come today, almost persuaded turn not away. And then the last stanza goes like this, almost persuaded the harvest is past, almost persuaded doom comes at last, almost cannot avail, almost is but to fail, almost persuaded, but lost. There are many people in the world today who are almost persuaded, almost there, just a few more days, 
and they're lost. And the point of the parable today is that we shouldn't be like that. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time to respond and to give our lives in service to the Lord. Which brings us then to this second parable that we have before us today, the parable of the tenants. One follows on the other here in Matthew chapter 21, and there is a connection between the two. That was intended by Jesus. We know there's a connection because of this whole image of the vineyard. Now, we said last week that this image of a fig tree or the image of a vineyard was an image in the Old Testament for Israel. Keep your finger there in Matthew chapter 21 and go back to the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, beginning at verse 1 and reading through the seventh verse. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O oh, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. And here's the critical verse, verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So that's what Jesus is dealing with. And when you go back then to Matthew chapter 21, and you realize that Jesus has now entered Jerusalem, he's cleansed the temple, he's cursed the fig tree, and he's telling these parables, parables about sons who promised to be obedient, but then were disobedient, sons who were rebellious, but then repented and returned. And then he tells this parable about yet another vineyard. It's clear to the disciples, Jesus again, hammering home on this point, this is the picture of Israel in his day. And the hypocrisy of the second son does not remain hypocrisy. Hypocrisy eventually leads to hostility. See, the first parable, the parable of the two sons, is about a second son who's hypocritical. I'll do it, but then doesn't do it. The second parable is about hypocrisy that ultimately leads to bloodshed. Here, another parable, he says, there was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. That's that same imagery from Isaiah chapter 5. This is what God did for Israel. And he leased it out to tenants. What an honor. And he went into a far country. And when the season for the fruit drew near, I mean, after all, if you're, if you're running a vineyard, the whole point of doing so is to produce fruit. A vineyard that doesn't produce fruit is worthless. It doesn't make money. It costs money. And so he comes back at the time of the harvest expecting to see the fruit of the tenant's labors. And what does he find? He finds 
nothing. The tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, in desperation, he does what? He sends his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? The parable, like the first one, is about Israel. But my friends, it's also about us. Now let me show you what I mean. Go to the book of Psalms, Psalm 80. If you were looking for the book of Psalms, it's not a hard thing to do. Uh, just open your Bible to the dead center. And chances are you're going to hit Psalms or Proverbs. If you hit Proverbs, go to the left. And you'll hit Psalms, okay? So easy way to find Psalms. You can always find Genesis at the beginning, Revelation at the end. Psalms is right smack dab in the middle. Psalm 80. All right. We're going to begin at verse 8. The psalmist says, you brought a vine out of Egypt. Now remember, the vine in the Old Testament represents what? It represents Israel. That's what Isaiah said. The, the vine, the vineyard, is Israel. And, and this is a recap of Israel's history. You brought a vine out of Egypt. At the time of the Exodus, where were the Hebrew people living? In Egypt. They were slaves to the Egyptians, making bricks without straw. It was a terrible time in their history. It was a time of persecution. But God, in his mercy, saw their suffering, raised up Moses, and did what? delivered them by signs and wonders and the power of his outstretched hand. He brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. He had a land that was prepared for them. He led them through the waters of the Red Sea. He provided for them water from the rock, manna from heaven. The pillar of cloud led them by day, the pillar of fire by night. God was with them. And when he led them to the promised land, to the brink of the promised land, he allowed them to enter. The walls of Jericho came crashing down. That's what verse 9 means. You cleared the ground for it, and it took deep root, and it filled the land. And the mountains were covered with its shade, and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the river. It's a wonderful picture of God's provision for his people. God did all of that for them. And yet, in spite of his care for them, his protection, his providence over them, what did they do? They refused to produce fruit. They killed the prophets, the servants who were sent to them, and ultimately, they killed the Son himself. That's what Jesus was saying to his disciples. This is a picture of Israel. But as with all of these parables, again, it's not just about them. It's also about us. You know, what I find so compelling about the parable of the tenants in particular is that this is not only a picture of ancient Israel, this is a picture of modern-day America, if you think about it. I mean, let's be honest. Hasn't God provided for us as a nation? 
Hasn't God planted us in a fertile land? You know, I never really recognized how fertile the United States is until I made my first trip to the Middle East. I mean, the Jordan River is the best river that they have in that part of the world, in Israel and in Jordan. And let me tell you something, at points, it's nothing more than a stream. It is nothing like the great rivers that we have. It's, it's nothing like the Mississippi or the Potomac or the Shenandoah. Or of course, we live in Charleston, the Ashley and the Cooper, which we all know flow together to form the Atlantic Ocean. We live in a fertile land. Has God not fenced us in and provided for us, my goodness, the rights and the privileges that we have that have been bequeathed to us by our founding fathers? I mean, many of us are struggling with this quarantine, and it's understandable. It's an unnatural thing to be sort of secluded as we are, to only be able to gather together on Zoom. I'll be honest with you, I'm Zoomed out. I don't know about the rest of you, but I'm Zoomed out. This is unnatural, but I mean, let's be honest. We still are provided for, aren't we? We still have roofs over our heads. We still have the advantage of being able to purchase food and, and provision and whatever we need. Has not God fenced us in and protected us and watered us and cared for us? Has he not provided civil servants for us? And yet are we producing as a nation the fruit of righteousness? We say, in God we trust. It's stamped on our currency. But do we really? Or are we a people who say, in God we trust, but we do indeed live like hell? Are we really any better than ancient Israel? If you think we are, turn to 2 Timothy for just a minute. 2 Timothy chapter 3. You know this passage. I come back to it again and again. Paul wrote this to his young protege, Timothy, who was left behind to be the leader of the church in Ephesus. I keep coming back to it because even though it was written in the first century, I have never seen a better description anywhere of 21st century Western or American culture. And here's how Paul puts it. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, and when the Bible speaks of the last days, it means that whole period of time between Christ's ascension and his return in glory at the end of the age. He says, but understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Why? He said, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. They'll be ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving the good. They'll be treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. 
Now tell me, is that not a picture of where we are as a nation and in the West today? Are we not lovers of pleasure? I mean, the one thing that's upset us more than anything else, aside from the fact that the economy is suffering, is the fact that we are denied many of the pleasures. We just want things to get back to normal. Are not people today heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit? Listen, that's any night on primetime television. That's exactly what you find on YouTube or on the internet. That is a picture of our culture today. And so we have to ask the question. We have been fenced in. We have been watered and cared for. We have been provided for as a people. We were a people who started off to be the new Israel, the city set upon a hill. But we have to ask ourselves, are we really any better than Israel? That's the great question. The reality, my friends, is what we really are and what the people in Jesus' day really were are enemies of God. Now, I'm going to ask you to give me a show of hands. I, I can't see everybody up there on the screen. And be honest, this is not designed to be a trick question, okay? So how many of you, when you think of yourself, regard yourself as an enemy of God. Anybody have a, a hand? Want to put up a hand that says, I'm an enemy of God, a sworn opponent of the Lord God Almighty? Most of us don't want to think of that. Now, how many of you would say, yeah, okay, I'm not perfect? Okay, we got, we've got some hands there. I see them going up. How many of you would say, yeah, I could probably do better than I'm doing right now? Uh, two hands went up on one person, I see. <laughs> but you're thinking to yourself, as bad as I am, I'm not quite that bad. I'm not really an enemy of God, am I? If that's what you're thinking, turn to Romans chapter 1. Now, you all know the epistle to the Romans is Paul's greatest letter. It's the weightiest of his letter. It was this letter that ultimately converted Martin Luther to the faith. It was this letter that converted St. Augustine to the faith. It was this letter that brought John Wesley to the faith in the 18th century, the great evangelist. This is a great letter. It is a profound letter. It's Paul's magnum opus. But look at how it begins. Romans chapter 1, very first chapter, beginning at verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. First thing Paul says is that the wrath of God is being poured out upon man. On the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness, he says what? Suppress the truth. He's saying it's not a case of people being ignorant of the truth. You know, you can't be blamed for ignorance, but that's not the case, Paul says. This is a case where they know the truth, but they suppress it. How do they suppress it? Well, he goes on to say in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. In other words, God's signature, Paul says, is written across everything that has been made. You cannot look at the world and say to yourself, there is no God. 
Now, this is what theologians call general revelation. And Paul says it reveals to us that there is a creator. There is a mastermind behind the universe. Now, general revelation has its limitations. It can tell you that a God exists. It can't tell you what kind of a God exists. I mean, if you're sitting down here in Charleston on the battery and you're looking out over the Ashley River and you're watching the sunset one evening and it's a pink hue and the, the, the scene is just beautiful, it's shining off the water, you think to yourself, oh, God is good. But we can't forget that the same God who allows that sunset to occur also allows hurricanes and typhoons and all kinds of terrible things. So general revelation will tell you that a God exists. You need something different, what we call special revelation, to see what kind of a God exists. But Paul's point here is that on the virtue of the created order alone, people should be seeking for God, trying to understand who he is. But instead, he says, they suppress the truth. They refuse to believe. He says, his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, so men are without excuse. Then he goes on to say this, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. It's a downhill spiral, you see, that when you turn your back on God, you just begin this downhill spiral, the bottom of which you never hit. Claiming to be wise, they become fools. They exchange the glory of the immortal God for created things, for images of mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, what happens? God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity. The language here, gave them up, is actually the language of a military exchange of prisoners. In other words, they want to do their own things, and God lets them. Let me tell you something. That is the worst thing that God can ever say to a person. The worst thing God can ever say to a person is not, you have to do it my way. The worst thing that God can ever say to a person is this, have it your way. And that's what God does here. He says, therefore, he gave them up. They insisted on going this way, so he gave them up. In the lust of their hearts to impurity, to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creation, created things. And this doesn't mean just, you know, idols as we think of them. It means created things, anything. You can worship the stock market. You can worship your house, your reputation. But the point is that they exchange the truth of God for a lie and they begin to worship created things rather than the one who is the creator. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions for their women exchanged natural relations for those who were contrary to nature. And men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, he gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Here it is, another picture, not only of first century culture, but a picture of 21st century culture. It's just as powerful as what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers. And here it comes, haters of God. Now you say, well, haters of God. Do you believe that actions speak louder than words? 
Do you really think that a wife believes the husband who gives her a Valentine's Day card that says, I love you with all my heart, but then beats her every night? Wouldn't you agree that actions do indeed speak louder than words? Well, that's what Paul is saying here. It doesn't matter what we say with our lips, but if our actions do not reflect that, what we really are is we are haters of God. That, my friends, is the picture of mankind in his natural state. And Paul repeats this in Romans chapter 5. He says, while if we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. When did Christ save us? Not when we had managed to get our acts together, not when we had managed to repent of our sins, not when we had warmed up to God. Christ saved us while we were still enemies. That's the biblical picture of the human condition. You know, if you ask most people the question, are people basically good or basically bad, most people are going to tell you today, people are basically good. But I want you to understand the biblical picture is bleak. Paul says we were rescued when we were enemies of God. That's the biblical picture of what we really are in our natural state. America's greatest theologian was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. He was perhaps the only truly great theologian. We've created a lot of pastors and a lot of good Bible scholars, but the greatest theologian in American history was Jonathan Edwards, who was a pastor in the 18th century up in New England. And he wrote a book, it was a classic, entitled The Discourse on How Man is Naturally God's Enemies. Uh, there's a book that you want to read at the beach. <laughs> Discourse on How Man is Naturally God's Enemy. But it's a very insightful book. And he actually unpacks how it is that you and I, by our actions, prove that we are in fact enemies of God, not friends of God. First of all, he says we are enemies of God in our judgments. That is to say, in the way we regard God, we have a very mean opinion of God. And he has a wonderful illustration of this. He says, if you are in mixed company, let's say you're at a party, a cocktail party or something like that, and you hear somebody attacking your wife or speaking in a negative way, a condescending way about one of your family members, what would be the first thing that you would do? How many of you would feel obligated? How many of you would have a desire to defend your loved one, defend your spouse? Let me see a show of hands if you feel that it would be your obligation and you would be eager to do that. He says, how often? Now, remember, he was writing in the 18th century. We're living in the 21st century. Things are much worse than it was in Edward's day. How often do we hear people talking in a disparaging way about God? And how often do we rise to God's defense? If you had a family member, you would rise to their defense. Do we rise to the defense of God? I think most of us, if we were honest with ourselves, would have to admit that we probably turn a blind eye to that sort of thing. When people take God's name in vain, we, we are reluctant to say anything to them. We think to ourselves, well, it's none of my business. I'll just pray for them. If we are willing to defend the honor and the dignity of a family member, but to deny the, honest, the, the dignity and the honor of our Heavenly Father, 
Doesn't that really speak louder than our words? Jonathan Edwards says, we are enemies of God in our judgments. He says, we are enemies of God in our desires, in the passions of our flesh, in the things that we long for. Uh, don't turn there now, but sometime, you might want to make a note of this, go back to Genesis chapter 6, where we have a description of humanity at the time of the great flood. And we're told that one of the reasons God sent that great flood to destroy humanity was why? He said, because he saw the way men and women were living. And the description there is particularly damning. It says, God saw that the desires of men's hearts was only to do evil all the time. God saw that the desires of men's heart was only to do evil all the time. You know, you and I are good at creating ways of doing evil. The reformers used to say that the human heart is an idle factory. So Jonathan Edwards said, we are enemies of God in our judgments, in our desires, in our wills. That is to say, we are at cross purposes to God. The psalmist says that what we want to do in our hearts is throw off the fetters. We want to be free. We don't want anyone telling us what to do. We don't want the government telling us what to do. We don't want other people telling us what to do. And we certainly don't want God telling us what to do. One of the reasons we're enemies of God is because God is sovereign. He is the king. And so he says we are enemies of God in our wills. We are enemies of God in our affections. Uh, the way he put it in the 18th century was enemies of God in terms of our relishes. Now, when we think of relish, we think of a condiment on the table. Relish is just another, way for you, another word for your desires. We're enemies of God in our desires, our affections. I mean, let's be honest. We praise God when things are going our way, don't we? But what happens when things begin to go sour? Don't we oftentimes blame God? This is exactly what Job's wife encouraged him to do. When things begin to go sour for poor Job, his wife said, why are you still being faithful to God? Why not curse him and die and be done with it? And oftentimes that's the way we think, isn't it? I'll serve the Lord as long as the Lord is giving me what I want. But the minute that things begin to go wrong, we curse God, if not with our lips, at least in our lives. And finally, he says, we are enemies of God in terms of our practice. And it's here that Edward gets as close as possible, I think, to the parable that Jesus is telling here in Matthew chapter 22. We say that we will do one thing, we will be faithful even unto death, but then we go and we do something else. It's exactly what Paul was talking about in 2 Timothy chapter 3. That's what we really are, my friends. We are enemies of God. Now, the question is this. What is to be done with such people? What is to be done with those people who are, in fact, enemies of God? That's the question that Jesus put to the Jewish religious leaders here in Matthew chapter 21. Look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, the vineyard represents Israel, the owner of the vineyard is God, the tenants are the Jewish religious leaders. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? 
And they said to him, verse 41, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This is the one thing they got right. The owner of the vineyard would come and he would put those wretches to a miserable death. And when they got those words out of their mouths, they were condemned by them. Condemned by their own words because Jesus was talking about them and they knew it. Because in verse 45, we read, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. That's what was going to happen to these people. Because of their unfaithfulness, God was going to bring judgment upon them. God was going to be wrath upon them. He was going to reject them, and he was going to let out his vineyard to another people. A people who up to that point had not been his people. To the Gentiles, to you, and to me. We don't like to talk about wrath and judgment, I know. And um, it's rather sobering when Jesus gets to the end of this parable. But just a few thoughts about wrath and judgment. First of all, judgment is necessary, my friends, if there's ever to be justice in the world. Second of all, judgment is necessary if there's going to be mercy. You can't have mercy if there is no judgment. And the third thing is this, God's wrath is not like human anger. You mustn't think that God sort of loses his temper and flies off the handle and gets mad because he doesn't get his way. That's not the case at all. God is a holy God. Of all the adjectives that are used in the Bible to describe God, the adjective that is used more than any other is not loving or merciful or kind. It is holy. God is the holy one. And what that means is that he cannot abide rebellion. He cannot abide by sin. It's like an allergic reaction. I, I like to say that when I when my second son was young, he used to be allergic to eggs. He's outgrown it, thanks be to God. But in his early days, he was allergic to eggs. He couldn't even touch eggs without breaking out in hives. It was a natural reaction. And there is a sense in which wrath is the extension of God's character. He cannot abide by sin. His wrath is enraged when he comes into contact with it like an allergic reaction. And yet, while God is holy, he is also merciful. He is also loving. And even though we are his enemies, he longs to save us. And so he sends his son, who is rejected and abused and beaten and killed. But for those who have faith, coming back to that original theme, for those who have faith in the son and what the son has done, those who are enemies are forgiven. An armistice is granted. And salvation is freely offered. Which son are you in the parable? In the first parable? Are you the son that says, oh, yes, Lord, I'll do what you want. Then you turn your back and do the other thing. Jesus said, if that's the case with you, you're going to be condemned. Or are you that second son who perhaps has been living your own life, but you realize the error of your ways? You realize that God saved us not when we got our act together, but while we were still enemies, he came and he died for us, and you're repenting and returning to the Lord. 
Or are you somebody who early on heard the cry of the Lord and you've been following him all the days of your life? God willing to the end of your days. Who are you in the second parable? The Lord has sent his prophets, his messengers. Have you heard them? Have you obeyed them? Have you responded to them? The son himself has come. Are you producing fruit in keeping with righteousness? Jesus makes it very clear, and I know we've just got a few minutes left, but Jesus makes it very clear, a choice has to be made. Look at verses 42 through 44. He says, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. I think when Jesus used this image here, he was probably thinking, of a passage from Daniel chapter 2. Um, King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel had a dream, and it was a dream about a great statue. Nobody was able to interpret the dream, but Daniel was. He was given insight by the Holy Spirit, and he was able to interpret the dream. Nebuchadnezzar's dream was of a great statue. It had a head made of gold, breasts and forearms made of silver, a belly and thighs made of brass, and legs made of iron, and feet and toes made of clay. And the king didn't know what it meant. What he did know is that there was this great statue, and then in the dream, a great stone came rolling down from a mountain and crushed the statue, crushed it into fine powder, and the wind came and blew it away. When Jesus is talking to his disciples, talking to the Jewish religious leaders, and he speaks of that stone which the builders rejected, the stone that would come and crush all those who rejected him, I think he has this picture in mind. Now, if you know the story about this dream, you know that the head of fine gold represented the Babylonian empire. The breasts and arms of silver represented the Persian empire. The belly and thighs of brass represented the Macedonian empire. The legs of iron represented the Roman empire. And the feet and the toes of the clay represented all of the empires that would follow the Roman empire. And you'll see that they were all impressive. The Babylonian empire, gold. The Persian Empire, it was breast of arms and silver. The Macedonian Empire, bellies of thigh and brass. The legs of iron, the strong, great Roman Empire. But none of these empires lasted. For there was a stone the builders had rejected that came down and crushed all these others to fine powder. And then that stone did what? It grew up into a great mountain that filled the whole earth. Jesus was saying to his disciples, you've got a choice to make. You can follow the ways of this world, the kingdoms of this world. You can give lip service to God, but deny the power of his religion. And if that happens, the stone which the builders rejected, and of course Jesus is that cornerstone, will come and crush you. Or, or he says, you can embrace that cornerstone. You can embrace the Son. You can give your life over to him, which is actually a service of perfect freedom. And you can become a part of that kingdom that will grow until it fills the whole earth and the kingdoms of this world become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he reigns forever. But the choice, the choice is yours, and we must all make it. Fruitless religion is unacceptable. 
We need to live lives that bear witness to the King. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we realize that your parables, they seem so simple to us, but they're not simple. Well, they're simple, but they're not simplistic. They have a simple message, and it's a powerful message. And we pray, Lord, that we would hear it, that we would indeed do better as a nation, do better as individuals. We pray, Lord, that we would believe in Jesus Christ, that we would be saved by faith alone, but not by that faith that is alone, that we would begin to live lives that are truly fruitful, that are an example to others, and so prove ourselves to be not enemies, but servants and friends of God. Grant this, Lord, for our sake, but more importantly, for Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray. Amen.